We are trying to get an overview of the whole story of God in these 10 or 11 weeks here this fall before Thanksgiving, um, trying to understand and, and get a vision of God's big picture um, and tracing the storyline of the Bible before we jump into today's uh, passages, I want to uh, quickly review for you where we've been and, and where we are in the story today. Um, we've said that we're tracing this pattern of the kingdom of God throughout the entire Bible, and the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying his blessing. So we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 that God's people are Adam and Eve, God's place was the Garden of Eden, and the blessing of those who live under the rule of God's word is that they join God as God's community on God's mission. So that's the pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we saw in Genesis 3 through 11 that the kingdom perished. And so God's people were no one. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and forfeited the right to be God's people. They were banished from God's place. They lived in disobedience to God's word, and so rather than enjoying his blessing, they were under his curse. But God didn't stop there. As we saw last week, God had a plan, and so he promised that he would continue to work to redeem and restore and to recreate his people. And so uh, we learned last week that God's people are Abraham's descendants, and we saw that that includes us as Abraham's descendants by faith. God's place at this point would be the promised land. We saw last week that that includes, yes, Palestine, but beyond those borders, ultimately, Revelation tells us that the promised land is the promised universe to all of God's people. And the promise was that uh, God would bless Israel, and Israel would bless the nations, and ultimately, uh, God's people, the church, uh, would be a blessing to the nations, and we would see that uh, Jesus came through Israel to bless the nations as well. So, today, we're going to begin the partial kingdom. Now, this section covers so much scripture, we're going from... Genesis uh, um, 12, all the way to the end of Second Chronicles. So we're going <laughs> to, not today, we're going to split this up into three weeks, okay? And so we're going to look at uh, God's people, and then God's place, and then God's rule and blessing over the next three weeks. But ultimately, in this section where the kingdom is, is now partial, it's, it's a picture of what God's kingdom is going to be. Uh, the Israelites are God's people. God's place is Canaan, and then more specifically, Jerusalem, and even more specifically, the temple where the presence of God dwells. God rules by his law, we'll talk about that next week, and by his king, and those who live in submission to God's law and God's king enjoy the blessing of being his people. So, here's what this is going to look like. Um, and here's how this section of the scriptures unfolds. 
Uh, Today we'll talk about being God's people, Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. God's rule and blessing, uh, we're going to see next week in Exodus 19 through Leviticus. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at God's place and God's king, and we're going to cover Numbers through 2 Chronicles. Sound good? Are you ready? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, uh, it's a flyover, okay? So be patient. Um, and if you use that uh, Bible reading guide, and if you didn't get one of these, I bet the rest of them are back there on the table. It'll, it'll help you um, keep up with the story. My goal with those Bible reading guides is that from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, you'll get some of the key passages throughout the whole story and it will help you um, get the big picture in your head. So let's pray and dive into today. Father, we need you. Uh, we need your spirit to come and to open up your word to us. Uh, yes, we're looking at it from, from way, way out, 30,000 feet up or more. Um, but I believe you have something to say and to encourage us with and challenge us with, um, even as we do this today. And so we ask that your spirit would come and open our hearts to hear your word. And would you stir our hearts to trust you, to have faith, to, to not just hear the word, but to hear it with faith, to trust the one who's speaking to us. Uh, through this story and through the supper that we'll enjoy afterwards. So would you do that in us so that we might be your people? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but uh, folks are beginning to notice that loneliness is an epidemic in our country. Loneliness is an epidemic, and it has a great impact on the health of people. Uh, The insurance company Cigna recently released uh, results of a study they did uh, back in May. They surveyed more than 20,000 U.S. adults ages 18 and older, and they found some alarming things. Listen to some of these um, statistics. Nearly half of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. One in four Americans rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand them. Two in five Americans sometimes always or sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful or that they are isolated from others. One out of every five people report that they rarely or never feel close to people or they feel like or or feel like there are people they can talk to now they did they did find that Americans who live with others obviously are less likely to be lonely compared to those who live alone but it but it's not that much different and then they said this doesn't apply to single parents or guardians. Uh, who, even though they live with children, are actually more likely to be lonely. Only around half of Americans have meaningful in-person social interactions 
such as having an extended conversation with a friend or spending quality time with a family on a daily basis. Only half of Americans have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. But I have so many friends on Facebook. What they call Generation Z, which is adults ages 18 to 22, is the loneliest generation, according to their study. And they also claim to be in worse health than other generations. So these researchers concluded that their findings reinforce uh, that we as humans are social in nature. And it reinforces the importance of having communities. And, and you may say, well, duh. But I wonder, I wonder how often you experience that loneliness. Um, I was thinking a lot about this this week. And it just, I don't know, maybe it's as a result of studying it and thinking about it that I've become aware of it. But I just had multiple opportunities to be aware of loneliness and relational brokenness this week. So if you'll permit me to share a little bit of that with you, this is not Jimmy using the sermon as a therapy session for himself. This is, I want, I want you to, I know that you can relate to these things, and I want you to hear. Um, today is my only brother's birthday. Uh, 54 years old today. And we haven't heard from him since March of 2017. Um, Before that, he's lived uh, homeless on the streets of San Francisco for probably the last four or five years, um, where he has been beaten, attacked, stabbed, Um, He lives on the street, but no one has heard from him since March of 2017, and we've talked to every agency that we can talk to, every social worker, every friend, and so as I think about him, I think about how lonely that life must be to live on the street to be in fear of your life all the time, wondering when your next meal will be. I think of my mom, who today will remember very intensely that he's missing because he never failed on a holiday or a birthday to call home. No matter where, he would find a phone and call. And he hasn't done that in over a year and a half. I thought this week about, uh, you know, I've only lived here about eight months, and I just texted a friend of mine back in Dallas and said, I miss you. I miss my friend. (coughs) And then it made me think about, what is it like to enter a new community? 
our family has moved into a new community. Even, even to move into a community as welcoming and warm as this one is, not just Signal Mountain, but especially Mountain Fellowship, this kind of transition highlights loneliness because you, you desire to have the level of friendship that you've left and yet it takes time for it to develop. To develop. I have two daughters. If you want to get in touch with loneliness, watch a high school girl deal with her relationships. If you have a heart at all, it'll break your heart. To watch them lay their hearts out and get them stomped. Do you ever feel left out or excluded? And I mean, we could go on and on. I don't know what it's like to lose a child to death or desertion. I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse to death or desertion. I don't know what it's like to have a spouse live with me but not be with me. I don't know that. Some of you do. And so by now you're thinking, wow, Jimmy, thanks so much. Why, why do we need to go there this morning? Listen, friends, if this isn't the place we can talk about what it means to be lonely, where, where can we talk about where to be lo- where, what it's like to be lonely? There's a reason why loneliness hurts. There's a reason why it persists. It's because, as we've learned in the story, that we were made for community. We were made for relationship. We were made by a community. Remember? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are the original and ultimate relationship. At the center of the universe, at the center, no, better, at the center of reality, even before there was a universe, is a relationship we call the Trinity. And Genesis 1, we saw, said that we were made in the image and likeness of that community. And so, of course, we long for relationship. Even those of you who think, I don't need people. In fact, people drive me crazy. Even all you introverts out there, you were made for relationships. Some of you can tolerate more, more of those than others. I understand. The greeting time is torture for you. But still, we were all made for deep community. We were made to be known and to know others. But relational brokenness is everywhere. And this is the right place to name it because God is the one who made relationship 
and God is the one who has done something about its brokenness. We saw in Genesis 11 that um, the folks who built the Tower of Babel um, were trying to solve their their problem, their, they, were pro- they were trying to preserve their sense of community and relationship. They said, let us build this city, let us build this tower so that we make, make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. And so, apart from God, without depending on the one who is relationship, they tried to create a false community. They tried to build God out of their city, out of their community. But God will not let that happen. God will oppose self-made, me-first, us-first pursuits of community, apart from dependence on him and apart from involvement with him. He'll oppose it because he has a better plan. As we said last week, over and over and over again, the refrain in Scripture is that God says to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people. All the way to the end of Revelation where he says, and now the dwelling place of God is with man, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Richard Foster says that uh, the Bible is all about Humans being with God. And if you would, you could trace that theme throughout the scriptures. With God, with God. And he says that God has done all that we're about to briefly cover in just a moment to be with us. And the question God has for people is, do you want to be with me? This is what faith looks like. This is what trusting God looks like. This is what depending on God looks like. Faith is saying to God, I want to be with you, whatever that looks like, and whatever that takes. I, I, I want to be with you, the one who wants to be with me. And because of sin, uh, because of Adam's sin, Uh, And because of the propensity of sin to turn us inward and not outward to God and others, uh, we will never seek the community that God has designed us for on our own as sinners. So God has to be the one who initiates it. Since the first Adam ruined community, the second Adam, Jesus, will have to redeem and restore it. And so the story of how this second Adam would come and redeem and restore God's people continues as we've seen in Exodus 3. God is still keeping his promise when he told Abram in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. God is keeping his promise to do that. One day there will be a perfect kingdom with a perfect community between God and people. But for now, in this part of the story that we're covering today, God is going to produce a partial kingdom. Partial because it will picture the perfect kingdom in some ways, 
But because there is still sin, uh, it will only be partially realized. So this whole big section of Scripture that we're about to cover in the next three weeks is one giant picture of the kingdom, but there's still this angst because it's only partially realized. And it creates this longing. As I said, God has to initiate this, and he did in Exodus chapter 3. God heard their groaning, and he remembered their covenant. Remember, uh, Nathan just read this a few minutes ago, Exodus 3, 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Do you hear? Do you hear the character of your God? He sees. He hears. He knows your suffering, our suffering, the suffering of his people. And he comes down because he hears them cry and he brings them up out of bondage into good. This is the God who loves you, who loves his people. And so he's the God who keeps his promise to create and redeem a people. But he has a plan. Here's his plan. Um, Since these people are sinners, he has to redeem them. He has to save them in order, for, in order to make them what he's created them to be ultimately. He has to do something uh, because they can't do it. And so God saves by substitution. He saves by subduing the enemy, and he saves us for his service. So let's look at those three quickly. Um. The Israelite firstborn deserves to die just as well as the Egyptian firstborn. So when we get to the story of the Passover, um, God is going to kill the firstborn of all in the land unless people trust his word and his instruction, trust his provision for protection from his judgment. And what is that provision? It's the story you know so well. The lamb is slain, the blood is placed on the doorposts and the lintel, the top. And the angel of death passes over when he sees the blood on the door. Whether God intended to do this or not, it's amazing that the shape of those markings of blood are the shape of the cross. On the doorposts, and the lintel of the door. The lamb and the blood point to Jesus, God's ultimate provision, God's ultimate substitute sacrifice that saves us from his judgment and the death we deserve so that we can be his people. And so, then God commanded them to keep a feast every year to remember his rescue. Jesus comes and says, 
you know what that feast was really about? The feast was really about me. I am the Lamb of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. I am the Lamb of God whose blood enacts a new covenant. And so now we continue that feast. We continue to remember that in order to be God's people, we have to be saved by a substitute, but also we have to be saved by God subduing the enemy. So God's people cross through the Red Sea on dry land just as they get out and are fearing that the enemy is still pursuing them, and he is. God commands the waters to come down, and he wipes out the armies of Egypt. God's people must be saved from their enemies, Satan, sin, and self. And Paul writes, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, the evil spiritual forces, made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God saves us by subduing our enemy. I I read this this morning. Every morning I read a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers, and this was in this morning's prayer. Thank you, Lord. This is awesome. Listen to this. It says, O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore, far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. Jesus has subdued your enemy, and he continues to subdue the enemy that lives inside us because we're his people. And finally, God's people uh, are not just saved from something, they're saved to something, they're saved for service. So they travel through the wilderness and they come to the mountain where God appeared to Abram, I mean to Moses in the, in the burning bush. He brought them, as he promised, back to that mountain and there enacts a covenant with them um, to be their people, the covenant at Mount Sinai. And this is how uh, Michael Williams describes what was happening at that mountain, and we read about it in Exodus 19. He says, Israel's adoption, the product of a thoroughly unearned grace, they didn't deserve this at all, their adoption comes with responsibilities, a call, a vocation. God calls Israel to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Yahweh here summons Israel as an entire nation to act as a priest, a mediator between him and the rest of the world. In this priestly service, he expects Israel to pray for, love, minister to, and witness to the nations. That was their purpose, that's ours as well. It's the same commission that Jesus gave us when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And God, and he said, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. God promises to be with us and we respond by being with him, by trusting his word and his way of rescue. Then he with us, we with him, together we serve God and others 
as we invite our neighbors and the nations and the next generation to be with God and with us. That's our mission. So what does this look like? Let's get practical for this last few minutes. How do I, in my loneliness, in my, my real sense that my relationships are broken and, and I sense the loneliness that, that happens in a broken world. How do I take all of this? What do I do with this God who says that he's with me? Here's a prayer. Write this down and go back to it. Psalm 25, 16. Here's a prayer to pray. Psalm 25, 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. So when you're lonely and afflicted, when you're keenly sensing that loneliness, pray, God, turn to me. Turn your face to me. I need face time with you, God. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. In other words, show me, give me the grace of your presence, of your face, of your relationship with me. Be with me. Turn to me and be gracious to me. And then when God turns his face to me in my loneliness and reminds me of all that he has done, he has moved heaven and earth to be with me. Then I can turn my face to other people and say, I know what it's like to have God with me. And to be with him, I want you in your loneliness to taste and see what it's like to be in community and communion with God and his people. Dan Allender says, if we have a heart to tend for the lonely parts of our own heart, then we often have at least some level of regard and kindness for the lonely parts of other people's hearts. If we can engage God and his promise to be with us when we're lonely, then we can engage others in their loneliness with the hope that God wants to be with them. And we're not left without help to do this. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. For those who are in Christ, they have Christ by his Spirit in them and with them all the time. And none of this is possible. Having your loneliness uh, addressed and being able to address the loneliness of others, none of that is possible without what Jesus has done. And this, I'm going to read you something that is so beautiful. I, I couldn't do it myself, so I need to read. This is from a, uh, a man named Alistair Roberts. 
Listen to what he says about Jesus. This is what Jesus has done to address your longing for community. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies in the climactic divine judgment under a darkened sky, opening up the doors of God's house. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones are preserved from being broken and whose blood proclaims freedom rather than condemnation. Jesus is the angel of the Lord who goes before us, forging a path through the deep so that we might pass through on dry land. Jesus is the one who outwits and overcomes the great dragon in an almighty showdown, drowning death in death at the very point where our enemy presumes he has triumphed at the cross. Jesus is the shepherd like Moses who is struck but leads his people out. Jesus is the one who establishes a new covenant in his blood, sealed in a covenant meal that alludes to the covenant meal of Sinai. And he invites everyone to join him. Jesus is the pure, unleavened bread of life, the Lord of the wine, which symbolizes new creation. He is the one who eats the herbs of bitterness with us and the one who explains to his descendants what all of these symbols mean. Jesus says, I'm with you in all of the love and terror and pity and pain and wonder that is your life. I am with you. Are you willing to be with me? Will you trust me? Will you trust my heart? And this meal is the place where he invites us to come and express our longing for him to be with us and our willingness to say, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to be with you. Father, would you come now and make this meal one in which we truly, by the power of your Spirit, commune with you. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and I will eat a meal with him, with her. And so, Father, we, we hear the knock even now as you invite us to this table. And we, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us to respond by opening our hearts and saying, I want to be with you. I can't believe you want to be with me. So hear our hearts cry as we come and take uh, this bread and this cup and set them aside from their normal everyday use and let them be for us, again, a sign and a seal of the promise that you said you would move heaven and earth to be with us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.